There's a number of different uh, occasions happening both today and in the next few weeks for you to connect and to share just kind of what God's been up to. And some of that sharing, a, a good measure of that impetus from the leadership of disciples, which really has been kind of headed up by Tom and Vincent over the years, has been to hear how God's using you as a missionary, um, recognizing that our role as missionaries in the world in which we live is not quite as complicated as we sometimes make it. And it is not so otherly that it's not designed to touch our lives. So uh, way to go for doing that and way to lean in. The stories have just been miraculous. Uh, as you know, just five Sundays ago, six weeks ago, we kicked off this season of time we've called Making Space. And on that day, we uh, had breakfast church, which I, I don't know if that will be the official term that we'll use long term, but really has been kind of a hit to just bring breakfast in and have kind of a family meal together and kick off this six weeks together of celebrating. And on that day, 30 of us made commitments to make space. Uh, many along the way have also thrown their commitments into the mix of that. Uh, but those commitments have essentially been kind of fivefold to pray through the regular prayers that were provided to us. Some added to those regular prayers a commitment to read the daily devotional and to see what God may be speaking to you in that regard. A good number of us fasted on Tuesdays throughout this season from at least something and really leaned into God's voice and all that, as well as experiences in the neighborhood and, and really finally the kind of commitment to be willing to share on Sunday. And I think Lori really embodies that beautifully of like, I've been fighting this for weeks. Um, and Lori, I don't know if you put it down on the card. I'm not calling you out. But, you know, some of, we wrote on that card that I'll follow God's leading if he wants me to share. And even just the willingness to say, God, if, if you do something, um, I believe that that thing you led me to do is not just for me. But there's an encouragement for the body to hear that and for us as a family to be encouraged. As we kick this off, I don't think any of us could have kind of predicted what those six weeks would hold both on a global scale, but also just in the day-to-day -day of our lives as a community of faith. Uh, we had a number of people in that span of six weeks lose a loved one. Um, somewhat unprecedented in the life of disciples. I, it's been a long time since we had a six-week span in our little church where multiples of you lost a child or lost a spouse or lost a dear friend to death. And we, like, we I think that that's, I don't know what to do with that, friends, other than to say that happened. And we, like, we walked that together. And I believe that in God's infinite wisdom, some of what making space is and will continue to be in us was prepared for a time just such as that. A number of you entered grief or re-entered grief, uh, which I, I, I will say only a little bit about grief so as to not prove what a fool I am. Uh, you know, I think the saying goes, um, keep your mouth closed and be thought a fool. Open it and remove all doubt. So I think that there's a number of you who re-entered grief in this month for which you thought was behind you, for which you thought you wouldn't revisit in the same ways. And for some, it has hit you with a new weight that you never knew. Uh, 
And we just kind of hold space for that. I don't, I don't know a better way to say other than to say family, friends, we hold space for that. That, that matters. Not to mention the fact, I'm going to mention the fact, so to mention the fact that in the last six weeks, a new war in the Middle East broke out. After however many thousands of years of conflict there, uh, an all-out war has broken out in a place that matters to people of faith and in a way that matters to people of faith. Some of you even heard God speak for the first time in the last six weeks. I know of a few of you who said, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that might have just been God speaking to me after all of these years of crying out, of sometimes even in bitterness, saying, God, why won't you speak to me? And God did, and used some pretty miraculous ways and powerful ways. So I say all that to say, what a shame it would be to close these six weeks on this special season together that we have lived and just put the spiral notebook on the shelf and say that was just a, another thing we did at my church. It was just another series of teachings. It was just another logo that will go on the wall somewhere. What a shame for us to treat that in such a way because at the root of it, making space is a lifestyle that we have leaned into about announcing the goodness of the kingdom of God. That's what making space is about. It's about us recalibrating our life around the realities that the kingdom of God is really good news for everyone. And wait, wait, no, it's not for everyone. So you can't use everyone words. It's not, it's not good news for those who are perishing. You want to bet? You want to bet? You bring the kingdom of God into the life, into the home, into the conversation of somebody who is far off from God and you give them a glimpse of what the goodness and non-coercive, non-icky way of Jesus is, you have brought good news to them. Making space is an organizing principle for the practices of our life that guides us back to intimacy with Jesus that in turn helps us to see the other. I just, I don't think there's ever been a time in scripture or elsewhere when a person genuinely met with the almighty God and it didn't heighten their compassion for the other. You want a litmus test of was I just in God's presence? Well, if you end that time in God's presence, however that may look for you, and you find yourself just as angry with the other as you once were, that, that might be worth exploring. I think the presence of God being with Jesus is always going to move us to greater depths of compassion, to greater depths of humility and forgiveness. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 28, and we land in a familiar passage of Scripture. At least a portion of it will be quite familiar. And if you've got a phone, I encourage you to snap a photo with your camera app of the QR code behind me. It'll be up throughout the talk today um, to capture notes and the text and all that other stuff. 
I'm going to pick up in uh, Matthew chapter 28 in verse 11. And, and I'm not going to do much to set the stage because my time is limited today as we enjoy the elements of the table and then enjoy the presence of one another in the parking lot in just a little bit. Um, my setup will be just this. What we read comes directly on the heels of the news that Jesus has risen from the dead. This is the resurrection story that we engage with. Verse 11 of chapter 28 of Matthew. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get into trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say, and their story spread widely among the Jews, and they tell the story still today. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Exclamation point. Emphasis. Verse 18, Jesus came and he told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Let me pray. Jesus, we uh, recognize your presence here and we're going to practice it in some unique ways this day. Please don't let us miss it. Please, with whatever gentle whisper or simple nudge that we need, that I need, that my friends need, help us not to miss you, your presence with us, the way you are with another. We pray it in your name, risen and ascended, Jesus. Amen. These closing verses of this text are like some of the most famous in the Christian faith of, uh, of anywhere. Uh, in fact, I find in various times with people who believe in God or don't believe in God, who have a, a religious background or have no religious background, you begin to rattle off some of what's known as the Great Commission there. And, and people know it. Um, even in our quite post-Christian world, people still have some familiarity with that, go ye therefore into all nations, right? Baptize them. It's known as the Great Commission, and that co-mission is not to be lost. And I'm not much of a, you know, let's dig into the Greek root of a word. That's not my style for some of you, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, but like, you don't have to dig too deep to get co-mission, commission, like this matters. And the promise of Jesus in that monstrous 
passage of text is something where we'll end with this morning, not only in the text, but also in our very practice. We'll practice that promise that Jesus gives those disciples, that he will be with them forever. But the practice of Christ's most important promise that he ever gave is punctuated by both the context and the call of that promise. The call that we fulfill and the context in which we live as we fulfill that call, living out that promise. So you have context and you have call and then you have the promise. Forgive me, I couldn't think of a C word for promise um, and I thought you would laugh at me if I came up with one. Look back with me at these opening verses in Matthew 28 as we really set the context for what's going on here. It says, as the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priest what had happened. What had happened being that Jesus is no longer in the grave. He's alive. He's, he's been taken. Something happened. He's been seen. And so they hatch a scheme, right? We're going to bribe you. We've got to keep. We must control the narrative. We're going to pay you a really, really good severance package. You just have to sign this NDA, and then you get out clean, right? You must say that Jesus' disciples came during the night, and we were sleeping, and they stole his body. And, and if the governor asks, we'll cover for you. And so they accept it. And that's the story that is told widely to this day. It's a, it's a fascinating cultural context in which those disciples lived. And the cultural context, even for us in making space for the way and the will of Jesus in our midst, is one where we demonstrate the way of Christ in spaces where we will be thought of as a thief and a liar. This is the context for making space, where we demonstrate the tender love, the humility, and the goodness of Christ, not merely among those who we love and who love us, but maybe most importantly, among those who believe us to be thieves and liars. We all know how natural it is to hang around with people who think like we do, who purchase like we do, who live in the kinds of places where we live, who see the world like we see it, who vote like us. And we know the myriad of passages of text of the, the great gift to love thine enemy. Anybody can love their friend. Anybody can love their family. I mean, that may be a slight overstatement, right? <laughs> a few of you grimace there. You don't know my family. I know. For some of you, I am your family, and I just repent, right? <laughs> but but we, we get the context here that, you know, and, and just to, to keep it in the context of what's going on, let, let me say quite briefly this reality that, remember, these, these 11 disciples who were left and the one who was with them before had lived a life of pretty cool fame and power and safety over the last couple of years. I mean, things had largely gone their way when they walked with Jesus. 
Everywhere they walked around, people got healed and fish got multiplied and Jesus got applauded. And even when he didn't get applauded, he really stuck it to him. You know, he like <laughs> killed fig trees and like turned the synagogue inside out. And like, it was cool to be around Jesus. And these guys would walk around going, hey, I'm with Jesus. And probably things went largely well for them. Well, literally overnight, everything turned. And it was now no longer in vogue to be one of the disciples of Jesus. You're now being thought of as a thief and a liar. You see, our, our lifestyle and a lifestyle that's committed to making space will not always be met with open arms. And I think that's important for us as we kind of close the chapter on the specific teaching around making space and continue to live that life out. We would be wise to guard our hearts a little bit knowing that as we make space for this beautiful and glorious way of Christ, it will not always be met with great welcome. And sometimes that will come from some of the most surprising corners of our lives. The very people we think would celebrate us the most are sometimes the ones who knock our knees out most consistently. Yep. Let me say it this way. The veracity of our pronouncement that God is good will be vetted first by answering, is this disciple good? The, the very believability of your statement that Jesus is good will first be tested against, are you good? <laughs> is there goodness coming out of this person who keeps telling me Jesus is good? Or is this person insecure and angry all the time or always trying to get money or whatever it is, right? Fill in your blank, whatever your stuff is. Those are just some of my favorite areas of weakness and sin and insecurity. You've heard me say it this way over the years, that uh, for your next door neighbor, the only Bible they've ever read is your life. That's it. That's the only Bible they're going to read is our life. And so if our life is one where we come skidding in on two wheels, running into the house, screaming at our kids, and then running back out 14 seconds later with a bag in tow and papers flying out the briefcase, jumping back in and peeling back out and almost hitting the neighbor kid on the scooter, get off that scooter, and then racing up the street, they go, ooh, boy, this Christianity thing looks awesome. Sign me up. Maybe not so much. This is the context in which we serve. Let's move to the call to make space. And it's a quite simple one. If you continue on there in Matthew chapter 28 and you look at the first little part of 20, you know, Jesus gives them some instructions in verse 19. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, it, you know, for anybody who's struggling with Trinitarian theology, and they go, well, you know, the Trinity's not even in the Bible. What? Huh? Like, he said it himself, right? So let that encourage you in this Trinitarian nature, which is at the core and at the root of the way of living with God is this reality that even God figured out how to live in community and in unity and not fight for a place at the table, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus says at the end there, teach 
these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Teach them to obey. Which is, to a large extent, one of the most unpopular words I can imagine in this day and age, right? Obey. I, and I, I don't want to make any swipes, and I don't want to be trite here with something that's really important. But let us just simply take an honest inventory in our lives of how we feel about that word obey. What it does to us. What giving over authority over our life to another does to our insides. But the call here is to teach new disciples to obey Jesus. To obey Jesus. So the context is we're, we're going to live a good portion of our lives making space to spread the glory of God among people who don't much want to hear from us. And then the thing we have to tell them is the best news for your life is to obey Jesus. But here's the promise, friends, that keeps us coming, that keeps us going, is that Jesus is forever with you. He's never not there. He says, you can be sure of this. We just came back from a retreat last weekend where a good number of us talk a fair bit of the time about how we're not so sure about this, that, or the other anymore. And for some, we're not so sure about anything anymore. And then we met on Thursday night for sacred conversations. And, and, and for the small group of us who gather around that fire pit, talk in greater detail about that which we are sure of or no longer sure of. But Jesus says to us that we can be sure of this, that he's with us. That he's with us. A whole lot he doesn't say we can be sure of right there. But you know what he leaves them with? Some of his final words to them? You can be sure I'm always with you. I will never leave you. I will never not be by your side. It won't matter what comes. It won't matter who cuts your legs out or who insults you or who calls you a liar and a thief. I'm with you. And this is, friends, at the heart of the Christian way. This is, friends, what makes the Christian way so radically different from any other religious way that's ever been introduced to us is that we serve a God who says, I'm with you. My presence is forever with you. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. And at the end of the day, making space is about reflecting the person and the way of Jesus. And that is, at its core, a person of presence. God begins in the garden in Genesis with Adam and Eve. God goes with Israel as they're traveling around, wandering the desert in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And says, don't leave my presence. God calls Moses up the mountain in Exodus 18 and 37. Double check me on that. I could very well be wrong. He says, be in my presence. 
He says through the prophets, you've left me behind. Come back to me. Return to me. Return to my way. I want you to be with me. And then when Jesus arrives on the scene, he says, come and be my disciple and I'll make you a fisher of people. I, I, am, I will be with you and you will be with me. And at the end of the testimony in Revelation, it's a picture of us with him. Eternity with no pain. And his presence brings us back to the table where we celebrate the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. The body broken for us and the blood shed to seal the new promise of his presence with us into eternity. Paul writes about this some years after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. And, and Paul has some pretty sharp words for the church in Corinth about how they're kind of getting some stuff wrong. And he says, you know, when you meet together, you guys have got this worship thing all, all sideways. And, and he picks on a few things specifically I won't go into in, in great depth for today, but, but he comes at them and at the root of what Paul comes at them about is simply this, you have made worship about you. <laughs> when worship was always supposed to be about the father for the other. He said, when you guys come together, some of you are getting drunk on the communion wine and others are going hungry. How have you discombobulated worship in such a way that you somehow made it about yourself? It's not about you. Yeah. And so in the years that followed, the Lord's Supper uh, kind of ceased from being a big, huge feast like it was in that day. And that's how uh, really the Catholics largely began to take the tiny little cracker and the little tiny thimble of juice. It's not because it just fits in the canister better, though it does. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was to be a practical reminder of us that this is symbolic of the bigger thing going on that we all get to enjoy Jesus that we all get to sense his presence, that nobody gets left out around the table of Jesus. So Paul says, for I, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it into pieces and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Our kids are going to be filing in here in just the next few moments to join us around the communion table. And the band are going to come and lead us in some worship. We're just going to leave this text up for a minute, let you reflect on it. I'm going to light some candles, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to just represent his presence here with us. Uh, and then I'll be back in just a moment to prepare us further for communion.